And let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would penetrate deep into our hearts tonight, that we would receive what you want to say to us, that we would have open hearts uh, that are ready to learn, ready to grow, ready to draw closer to you. So please just speak to our hearts now. God, please be honored and blessed by the devotion that we're giving to your word and to your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would just be exalted above all. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to finish our overview of the Old Testament tonight. Next week we're going to find ourselves in the book of Matthew, um, which is so basically, you know, we're marching through uh, the Old Testament in broad strokes. You got the first five books of the law, uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch, which is basically origins of the nation of Israel, or really origins of the world, uh, and then sort of the beginning of Judaism. You've got the histories, which is Joshua up through the book of Esther, which covers just sort of the, the chronology of the nation of Israel, and then once it divides the nation of Israel and Judah, you've got the poetry and sometimes what's called the, the wisdom literature. And then you have the major prophets, which are uh, the longer books of prophecy, and the minor prophets, which are the, the shorter books of prophecy. And they're no less significant. Um, they're just shorter. So if anything, they're a little just more condensed. And so tonight we're going to hit the last two minor prophets, Zechariah and Malachi. And uh, with Zechariah specifically, it's, you know, the context is important. Um, Zechariah is what some people call a post-exilic prophet, which basically, you can forget the term, but basically it's post-exile. So after the Jerusalem and the nation of Judah were carried off into Babylon, they were there for 70 years, and then they came back. And after that exile and that return, there were a handful of prophets, and Zechariah is one of them. So... Zechariah and then Haggai, like we covered last week, specifically came to the nation at a point in time when the nation had come. They had come back. They, they had received the promise of God and come back, but they had just run into all kinds of opposition. And they had a lot of political power against them, saying, you can't rebuild the temple. And there was a lot of uncertainty. Really, they're trying to rebuild their lives from scratch in a lot of ways. And just about the only thing they have to go on are the promises of God. And so Zechariah and Haggai show up on the scene to say, hey, it is time to do the work of the Lord. It is time to do what the Lord has called you to do. Regardless of what your circumstances, regardless of how equipped you feel, it's time to do the work of the Lord. And so Haggai specifically is referencing, is, teaches the people in terms of it's time to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah comes at it, and he's approaching that point, but he's also, he goes a little more big picture. And so the book of Zechariah is uh, the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14, yeah, it's 14 chapters, and it divides roughly into four sections as we're looking at it in an overview form. So the first six chapters are eight visions that Zechariah sees, and the visions that are from the Lord to him for the encouragement of the people, all right? And, and just like anything in the Bible, we want to understand its context. And if we can understand that, it really helps us see how it can apply to our lives today. Chapters 7 and 8 are sermons that he gives um, regarding a couple specific things that the Israelites need to address. 
And then the rest of the book is prophecy. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, are roughly prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And chapters 12 through 14 are prophecies about the second coming. And I say roughly uh, the first coming because so much of Jesus' coming is fulfilled in sort of a two-step process. Because he came once and he's coming again. There are a lot of prophecies that we can say, oh, that's distinctly for the end times. That hasn't even remotely been fulfilled yet. But there are a lot of prophecies where we can say, you know, in a lot of ways, that really was kind of fulfilled when Jesus came the first time, but it's also going to be more completely fulfilled or more fully finished when Jesus comes again the second time. So that's just why we say that. But so the first six chapters are eight visions. And... Uh, you know, a lot of times, Zechariah is, is sort of a book that's easy to uh, just sort of glaze over because you jump into this book and he starts seeing visions. He sees a man on a red horse and a man uh, with, and there's three other horses. He sees these horns. He sees flying scrolls. He sees all these things. And you're like, what on earth do any of these even remotely mean? Um, and... So we're not going to unpack all eight of them tonight. We're going to unpack just a couple of them. But um, I would seriously encourage you guys, I said this during Daniel, and I'll say it again. Uh, Damian Kyle is a pastor in California. He's a phenomenal Bible teacher. He uh, went through the book of Zechariah this year with his church. And if you are reading Zechariah, we'll, we'll get to it. If you're on the through the Bible in a year plan that we're doing as a church, we'll get there in September. If you get to Zechariah and you think, I have no idea what any of this means. Uh, I think Damien Kyle does just a phenomenal job of unpacking it. He's great at saying, here's what it means. He's also great at saying, truth be told, none of us are sure what this means. So he's not making stuff up, but he's connecting it very well with the rest of Scripture. So um, if you want to go a little more in depth, that's where I would start. But we're going to look at two of these visions specifically tonight. Uh, the first one is in chapter 3. And it starts in verse 1. Um, and it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now there were two primary leaders in the nation of Israel at this point. There's Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And so we're going to see a vision that Zechariah is given regarding Joshua and one that he's given regarding Zerubbabel. But remember, these visions are given to encourage the people. They're given to exhort them, hey, it's time to do the work of the Lord, okay? So he has a vision. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. That's, in other words, he's standing before Jesus Christ. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So Zechariah has a vision. He sees Joshua, the high priest, the spiritual leader of the nation at this point. He's standing before God and he's filthy. And Satan is standing there ready to accuse him before God. Satan is called in scripture the accuser of the brethren. He loves to tell God why God should not love us. He loves to tell God why God should cast us off. And, uh, you know, and the sad reality is he doesn't have to make anything up. Satan doesn't have to embellish the facts to convince God that we are losers because we are losers just, just fine on our own, right? He doesn't need to exaggerate anything. Uh, we're all sinners. We've all uh, removed ourselves from the holiness of God. And so Joshua is standing there with filthy garments. It doesn't say Satan's lying about Joshua's condition. 
But as Satan is getting ready to accuse him, it says Satan is uh, he's standing there to accuse him. He hasn't started accusing him, and the Lord shuts him up. The Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. And he says, this is a branch I plucked from the fire. This is someone I have chosen who's going to carry the fire, who's going who's to carry the truth for my people. And in verse uh, 4, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. That's like white festival robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Joshua is standing there. He's filthy. He's in, in his clothing there is really a picture of his spiritual condition. He's sinful in the eyes of God. He's sinful before Satan and before the Lord. He deserves to be cast out from the presence of God. And the Lord says, I am going to cleanse him. And the Lord doesn't just cover up his dirt. The Lord doesn't wash his dirt. The Lord removes his filthy garments and clothes them with new garments. And Joshua, in that sense, really becomes an incredible picture for us of the gospel. Because the Lord, we come, when we're in the presence of God, we're in the exact same condition. Uh, scripture says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. Uh, the word for clothing here would specifically reference like clothing that's covered in excrement. All right? So all of our righteousness, the absolute best we can do before the Lord is revolting in his presence. And Satan can stand there and he can totally, he could level just an honest accusation and the Lord would cast us out of his presence because of his holiness. And instead, by the grace of God, the Lord doesn't just cover us up. He doesn't look it over. He doesn't ignore it. He removes it. He takes it away by the blood of Jesus Christ and we now get to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We get to be clothed with, really, the clothing of Christ comes upon us in the eyes of God. And so, this is an encouragement to Joshua. It's an encouragement to the people right here. You know, Joshua is coming back after 70 years of captivity, and there's got to be that sense of, man, we have blown it so many times. Right? And we're still just running into rut after rut after rut. Maybe this is just like, maybe this is just it. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. This is not it. I have taken away your filthiness and I have clothed you. You are a brand plucked from the fire. You're that stick pulled out of the fire. You're still going to hold on. And so I have clothed you. I have cleansed you. And uh, then in, in he goes on just a little bit and he turns it into a prophecy. And he says, uh, he says, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For uh, behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. And then he goes on a little bit. And he says, I'll, there's a stone that I've set before Joshua, and on the stone are seven eyes, and I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. The Lord here says, Joshua is a symbol of what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Did that happen? Yes, it did. Right? Jesus Christ came and he died and he paid the blood sacrifice for our sins in one day. He says he died once for all. His one death upon the cross was so sufficient because of his holiness that it, it not only covers, it removes and restores every single one of us for every single sin we've ever committed. As long as we're willing to accept it. 
And we have that choice. We can choose to say, no, 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 I love my filthy garments. I love just the way they smell. I love the way they look. You know, they, they fit me nicely. Or we can take on the righteousness of Christ. And so Joshua becomes that picture. So it's an encouragement to the people there. But the Lord says, hey, this is a symbol. And so it needs to be an encouragement to us now, right? So in chapter 4, we're going to look at one more vision and then we'll jump into the rest of the book. Um, in chapter 4, the angel who was speaking with me, because he's having, you know, visions enough that there's the angel who, they're on a, whatever, a conversational basis at this point. So the angel who's talking with me came back and he roused me like a man who's awakened from his sleep. And he said, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, there's a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. What on earth is that? Okay, basically, here's what you're looking at. Um, picture like a Jewish menorah, all right? Well, in the tabernacle, the menorah lamps were lit with very specific oil. They had to be pressed, had to be prepared. The priest had to do all this work. And in Zechariah's vision, the oil is running straight from the olive tree to the candles, to the lamps, okay? So he sees basically the oil running straight in and that nobody else is making it happen. It's just oil from the tree to the lamp. And then he said to the angel who was with him, uh, what are these? In chapter 4, verse 5, so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Zechariah's got a nice little of honesty. He says, uh, okay, what on earth is this? And the angel says, you don't know? He goes, no, right? I mean, at this point, most of us would be like, well, I mean, you know, I've got, a, I've got an idea, but I just want to make sure that you're, we're, thinking we're on the same page here. No. Zechariah says, nope, no clue. Sorry. Out of ideas. And so, verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel's the other leader. He's the governor. Saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The Lord says, basically, and bear in mind, throughout all of Scripture, whenever we see oil in the context of the presence of God, it's always symbolic of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Zechariah sees oil going straight from the source to the lamp. And the Lord says, this is the word for Zerubbabel. He is not, he's, he's, Return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to try and establish some sort of governmental system for these people. He's not going to do it by might. He is not going to do it by power. He's going to do it by my spirit. The Lord is saying, the oil, what he needs in order for his lamp to be lit is for oil to come straight from me to him. He doesn't need any kind of extra man-made processes along the way. He doesn't need any sort of purification rites. What he needs is the oil from me to him. And so he's not going to accomplish what he's setting out to do here by might. He's not going to accomplish it by power. He's going to accomplish it by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we look at this and we say, that's a word from the Lord to Zerubbabel. But it's not just to Zerubbabel. It's to every single one of us. Because this verse, in the context of the, the scriptures, totally applies to our lives. Right? Our goodness is nothing apart from the Lord. We can do nothing apart from the power of the Spirit of God. And so the Lord says this to Zerubbabel, but really he's saying it to us as well. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house, and his hands will finish it. 
He says, Zerubbabel started building this temple. Zerubbabel is going to finish building this temple. And then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So he's saying, I'm going to equip Zerubbabel to finish the project I sent him for. He's going to do what I sent him to do by the power of my spirit, and he's going to finish it. And for who is despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. A couple of translations sort of phrase that sentence where it's a little clearer. It basically says, these seven eyes of the Lord, or in other words, the eyes of the Lord, the Lord's, what the Lord sees, will be pleased when they see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. So he's saying, you're going to do this by my spirit. You're going to finish this by my spirit. And the eyes of the Lord will be glad when they see the tools in his hands. What does the Lord want Zerubbabel to do? He does not want Zerubbabel to rebuild Solomon's temple. He wants Zerubbabel to build the temple that he can build. Right? He does not want Zerubbabel to say, yeah, this is nothing compared to what we had. He wants Zerubbabel to have the plumb line in his hand and to be building the temple that he can build. And he says, you're going to do that by my spirit. You're not going to do it by might. You're not going to do it by power. You're going to do it by my spirit. And that's, that's how life works for all of us, right? We tackle the job that's in front of us that the Lord has given us. And we don't do somebody else's ministry. We don't try and build what somebody else built. We don't try and do anything else. We, we take what God has given us, the opportunities, the callings, the giftings that God has given us right now for our lives, for this time, for this place, and we do them by the Spirit of God. And that, and the Lord will complete that work, right? To his, to his expectation, to his level, the Lord will get that job done because it's being done by his spirit. And so he says, Rubel's going to finish this and I want to see him working, but not by might and not by power, by my spirit. Um, so then he goes on, the other visions are all meant to encourage the nation and remind them that, hey, the Lord still has a plan. The Lord's still going to take care of you. He's going to sustain you. And then he goes on, uh, chapter 7 and 8 are a couple sermons. Really, uh, specifically, he's dealing with, are you serving me or are you just having these religious rituals because it's what you do? And he's trying to exhort them, you need to serve the Lord because you're serving the Lord, not because it's just what you've done. Um, but then... Chapter 9 through 11, we get into prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And uh, so we'll just kind of, we're going to jump them kind of fast. But he starts giving a prophecy about all these nations around them. They're going to be conquered. And he winds up describing uh, really the world conquest of Alexander the Great. And so he says, I'll cut off basically all the Philistines. And uh, he goes through all these cities that are going to be conquered and the city of Tyre is going to be conquered. Alexander conquered Tyre in about five months and nobody else had really ever been able to conquer it. Um, and then he says, and eh, where do we want to go? Chapter 9, verse 8. He says, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I've seen with my eyes. Historically, Alexander the Great passed by Israel on his way to conquer Egypt and he passed by on his way back home. He never bought, stopped to conquer Israel. He actually, tradition says that the Jewish priests went out and showed him the prophecy in the book of Daniel about uh, the goat coming across and, and conquering the ram and they said, hey, this is where the Lord prophesied about you. And he said, that is so cool, I'm not even going to bother conquering you guys. 
Um, but he passed by and returned. He didn't conquer him. And the Lord prophesies it right here. And then, so he says, you know, this king's going to come. But verse 9, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's this? This is the prophecy of the triumphal entry. Really, it's, it's, well, yeah, it's a prophecy of when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And uh, in the Gospels, we'll get there in the next four weeks, they connect it to this. They say, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, he goes on in verse 10, says he'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from the sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Has that part of the verse been fulfilled yet? Not yet. Uh, is there peace in all the nations? No. No. Why? Because Jesus is going to come twice. First time he comes in on a donkey. It's really, we call it the triumphal entry. It's really the humble entry. The second time, and we'll get there in just a second, the second time he comes in on a white horse and he conquers all the armies of the world and sets up his throne and reigns over the entire earth for a thousand years. That's the triumphal entry, okay? So Zechariah here gives us a short-term prophecy that's encapsulated in a long-term prophecy. So 9, 10, and 11 are... Uh, Oh, there's just a lot of that throughout those chapters. But chapter, starting in chapter 12, we kick into uh, future prophecy, things that have not yet been fulfilled. And he's, he really goes into uh, the time of the Great Tribulation. And we're going to try to not go crazy far into it tonight. Uh, but basically, during the time of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will rise to power. He'll become the one world leader. And he will be the man who the Jewish people believe is their Messiah for three and a half years. And at the three and a half year mark of a seven year peace treaty that he'll sign with the nation of Israel, he's going to go into a temple that has not yet been built. He's going to declare himself to be God and he's going to demand to be worshipped. And at that point, there's going to be unleashed wrath on the Jews that has never been experienced before. Okay, it'll make the Holocaust look like nothing. It says here... Uh, there's a spot that says basically two-thirds are going to be cut off in the land. So uh, in context, he's probably saying two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed. Uh, but then he goes on and he's describing basically the end of, of the end of time, really. But along the way, he's giving us these hope and the, these glimpses of what he's going to be doing. He says he's going to just pour out on the house of David, chapter 12, verse 10, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they've pierced. The Jewish people are going to realize very abruptly that the man they thought that was their Messiah is not their Messiah. And so all of a sudden, the lights are going to go on in their heads, right? And 2,000 years of Christian doctrine are all of a sudden going to come alive for them. And there's going to be an incredible revival among the Jewish people. And so... And this, he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. They're going to receive the grace of God and they're going to be seeking God, right? And then he goes on and describes uh, the final battle of Armageddon, which we get a description of it here. There's a description in Daniel 11. There's a description in Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 16. And basically what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to have world dominion. Everybody's going to just think life is great for three and a half years. Uh, 
but there's going to start to be these rumblings and unsettlings and the world's going to start to turn on them. And so uh, there's going to be a bunch of African nations that rebel against him. And so he's going to take an army. He's going to be headquartered in Europe. He's going to take an army down and conquer a large part of Africa. But while he's down there, it says the king of the north and the king of the east are going to come against him. So if we're looking at scripture and taking, it, taking prophecy as literally as possible, then what we're probably looking at is Russia and probably some sort of Chinese army are going to decide we've had enough of this guy. Let's come and fight against him. And so basically at this point, all the great armies of the world are going to converge together in Israel, in the Valley of Megiddo. And they're all going to come together. They're going to be ready to fight against each other. And then they're going to decide, you know what? Let's pause. Let's destroy the Jewish people and then we'll go back to killing each other. And the Lord's going to come down that's when Jesus will return. He says he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split the mountain in two. And they're going to have the audacity and the pride and the wickedness to think they can conquer the Lord. And so you're going to have one of the largest armies ever assembled coming together to fight against the Lord. And it says that he's going to look at them and wipe them out. And, you know, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, but it's not a battle. It's, it's the Lord just showing up and he looks at them and it's over. And, uh, and it says, you know, he describes it. It says in chapter 14, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they'll seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah's going to gather all their wealth. And it's one of these, and he even specifies, you know, he'll deal with, the armies, but he won't necessarily judge the individuals within those nations. And so it's just an incredible prophecy that's incredibly detailed where we get to see the Lord say, here's what I'm going to do. And we put it in its context, right? Zechariah's giving this to the people and he's simultaneously giving it to us to say, hey, be encouraged. The Lord is still in control. You've got, you know, your temple that you're trying to rebuild, your city that you're trying to rebuild. You've got to remember a big picture, which is that your God is still in control and he's still seeing the, the big picture, right? And you're going to accomplish the part of the picture that he has for you to accomplish, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. You're going to be in his presence, not because of your righteousness, but because he's removed your unrighteousness, right? So Zechariah's got all kinds of just incredible prophecies. He's got incredible exhortations, but it's, remi it's a reminder to us that the Lord is still in control. And so that takes us to the book of Malachi, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Chronologically, he's the last prophet of the Old Testament. After the book of Malachi, there is no prophetic utterance in Israel for about 400 years until John the Baptist shows up. And so this is like, you know, sort of uh, the last, well, no, never mind, a bad analogy. Uh, but this is, it's the last prophetic utterance before John the Baptist. And so it's really... Uh, just a bunch of very stern rebukes from the Lord to the people because this is after the time of Zechariah and this is later on and the Lord is coming to them and saying, guys, snap out of it. And so we're going to go through it. Um, and just I'll just give the, the heads up now. A lot of times when, when you go through the book of Malachi, a lot of the rebukes are very stern. They're very pointed. And... Uh, a lot of times when a pastor teaches through Malachi on a Wednesday or a Sunday night or whatever, he makes some sort of comment about, you guys are the Wednesday night crowd. You don't need to hear this. And 
with respect to any pastor who does that, that's diminishing the relevance of the Word of God. So I'm going to teach Malachi, okay? And I'm going to say what it says. And if it convicts you, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. All right? Uh, and sometimes, and so I just give that to say, sometimes we, we read really strong conviction from the Lord and say, that's a great thing to sort of just reflect on and, and be mindful of. And sometimes it's a wake-up call from the Lord. And so I'm just sort of throwing that out. That way, if it feels like a guilt trip, it is, but it's not from me. It's from the Holy Spirit. Uh, so Malachi chapter 1. We'll just start in verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So this is the Lord's opening, opening line. I've loved you, and you keep saying, how, show us. How have you loved us? And the Lord says, well, basically, I could have chosen Jacob, but I could have chosen Esau, but I chose Jacob. I could have let you guys die off any one of a number of times, but I've kept you going this whole time. I have kept you, right? And, and you're just blowing me off. And uh, verse 6, and he just, he just gives these rapid fire. So we're just going to move through them a little bit rapid fire. Chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, father, and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest who despise my name? God says, listen, there's some basic authority structures in this world, right? A father should receive some respect from his children. A master should receive some respect from his servants or his employees. And so, if I'm your father, where's the respect? And, and this isn't God saying, uh, this isn't God, you know, standing up and demanding his respect like some sort of tyrannical, you know, whatever, I'm not jerk male, right? Bear in mind that this is God who actually deserves it all, right? When a man stands up and says, I deserve respect, he's saying it because he actually usually doesn't. Uh, and he's feeling guilty about it. When God stands up and says, I deserve respect, it's because he does, right? And because it's like the most base level of response you could give to God is to respect his holiness. So he says, where's my respect? And, and you need, you are, you, you know, to the priest specifically, you're representing me to the people and you're failing to respect me. And then and he says, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present, so he says, how, you want to know how you're disrespecting me? You're offering lame food as a sacrifice. Verse 8, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? God says, you guys are disrespecting me before the people and you're misrepresenting me. And the priest is saying, give us one good example. And he says, okay, how about this? When you offer a lamb, you're offering the blind ones or the ones that can't walk. You're offering the ones that you can't get anything for any other way, right? You are offloading on me. He says, and if you don't think that's disrespect, I have a great little experiment for you to try. Offer it to your governor. And just see what he thinks, right? And just go tell the governor, I brought you a gift. Here's my blind sheep that can't walk, right? And just see what he says. And, and, and it's, a great little, it's a great little point for us to stop and say, what are we offering the Lord? Are we offering the Lord less than we would be comfortable offering a human being? Uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, I'm just, just think of it this way. If you have a boss and your boss says, hey, uh, I'd like to talk to you on Monday at 10 o'clock. 
I have something important I want to say to you. What time would you show up on Monday? I don't know. Probably 9.55, right? Um, that'd be, you know, sort of a good time. Um, probably not 10.30, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you all have your own boss. I'm, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's how you and your boss roll. But, but, you know, if your boss says, I've got something really important I want to say to you. Let's meet Monday at 10. What time would you show up? Probably 10-ish. God says, I have something really important I want to say to you. Let's meet Sunday at 10 o'clock. What time do you show up? Right? And I say that not to be condemning. I say, you know, I, I do understand. You guys are here on Wednesday night. But it's important for us to go back in our hearts sometime and say, if I offered God the same service I offer somebody else, what would that look like? Right? I mean, we're incredible at, you know, we're incredible at texting people back. Are we great at responding to the Lord? We're great at, you know, going to YouTube to look for a solution to a question. Are we great at asking the Lord for his wisdom to a question? Right? So it's just a great point for us to back up and say, wait a second. Is this, am I, am I offloading on the Lord the extras? Right? Am I giving to the Lord what I really can't use any other way? And, and claiming it as a tax deduction or whatever else, right? Am I, am I just, am I dumping, right? The Lord says, don't dump on me. I am not, I am not, you know, I am not your whatever. I'm not your trash chute. I'm not your laundry bin. I'm God. And then chapter 1 verse 12 is really the great summary of Malachi. Um, it says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. We forget in our modern world, I think, too often what a king is, right? We live, I mean, we live in a world with, with a free press, by and large, uh, at least theoretically, right? Uh, we live with a free press. And if you want to uh, voice your opposition to those in power, you can do that, right? You have the, the right in this country to stand up and say, if you think somebody in power is stupid. That might not be a wise choice, but you have that freedom. You don't go to prison for saying someone is stupid in this country. Well, particularly in the ancient world, if you say the king is stupid, you don't go to prison. You die, right? And if you're lucky, it's fairly quick. If you're unlucky, you become a public example of how slowly we can kill somebody when they disrespect the king, right? The Lord says, I'm a great king. Bear in mind what a king is. How do you demonstrate respect to a king because of the authority that he's been given? And they're given, you know, these people understand authority on an earthly, kingly level. Bear in mind, this is the king of heaven. This is the king of earth. This isn't the king who came into power. This is the king who authored everything that's under his dominion, right? And he says, what do you, and really what he's saying to the people is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, how are you going to respond to that awareness? In chapter 2, uh, he goes on, he says, here's another thing that you guys are doing. He actually legitimately says that. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. God says, I've got one more thing. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? <clears throat> he says, you guys are like having these huge prayer fests and you're all mourning before my presence because you know that I'm not listening. And you say, why isn't he listening? Verse uh, 14 
because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. God says, I'm not listening to your prayers because you're cheating on your wife. And it's, you know, it's straightforward. The Lord tells us uh, in Peter's epistle, if a man isn't dwelling with his wife in understanding, his prayers are actually hindered. God can hit the mute switch on your prayers if you are not dwelling in harmony with your spouse. Right? It's a great time to be a single person in the room, isn't it? Uh, but the Lord takes marriage very seriously. The Lord expects you to be treating your spouse with honor and with love and with dignity. And he goes on and, and with faithfulness, right? And he says, but not one of you has done so who's got a remnant of the Spirit. And he says, verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, you got to, you know, contextually, uh, you read that verse, you've got to, you know, in a room this size, I know there are people in this room who have been divorced. And, uh, and that's, that's something that's in the past, and, and, I, and that's, that's in the past, right? And you know what? Divorce happens for a lot of reasons. I understand that. Sometimes divorce is very legitimately the lesser of two evils. And, and that's, uh, that's a tragic reality, right? But sometimes that is the reality. And so if, if somebody in this room is divorced, then that's not, this is not a slam against you. This is the Lord saying, you understand, I hate divorce. And so if you're getting divorced just for fun, and, and culturally we've got to put a little bit of context here too. Around this time, just a little bit after this, there was a rabbi who was very prominent in Israel who popularized a teaching that said, if your wife makes you... Uh, lose your temper, really she's making you unclean. And so really, if your wife ticks you off, she's actually making you sin. So you'd be better off divorcing your wife. So there was legitimately a teaching that went around that said if your wife burns your eggs, you have a right to divorce her. That was a literal teaching in Israel, okay? And so the Lord is countering that. He's saying, no, I hate divorce. Divorce is something that has to be taken very, very seriously. And the Lord instituted marriage to be a picture of the gospel, to be a picture of the love of God for his people as demonstrated between the love of a man and a woman. And so he takes it very seriously. But specifically here he's referencing people who are just totally cheating on their wives. Totally just walking away from their family but expecting the Lord to bless them. Right? And so contextually he's saying, you've got to understand, that doesn't fly. Right? If you're trying to play games with, with unfaithfulness and you're wondering why I'm not going to bless you, it's because you're being unfaithful. So come back to a point of faithfulness. And again, like we said, you know, like with Joshua, if, if you've been divorced or if you've committed sexual sin or if you've done anything like that, and I don't think there's a person in this room who isn't guilty under that, under that category, right? We're all filthy in the eyes of God, right? And if it's in the past and we've accepted the righteousness of Christ, that garment's been removed. But going forward, we look and we say, okay, I want the Lord to hear my prayers. So what am I doing? Well, if you're married, you take it seriously, right? If you're single, you take that seriously too. And if you're prepping to get married, you take the preparation stage seriously, all right? But you don't play games with your purity and expect the Lord to bless it. And, and the Lord takes that seriously. And, and again, you know, we just got to say it. Uh, what's in the past is in the past. The grace of God extends 
to cover all of our sin. But that does not give us license to then continue in that sin. So he says, you know what? I hate divorce. Um, chapter 2, verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. You guys are just like, you're praying nonstop, but you're not getting anything done. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. God says, you guys are refusing to call sin, sin. You're making excuses for everything. You're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. You know, God just loves everybody, doesn't he? You are so special in God's eyes. You are blessed. You're too blessed to be stressed. That's what you are, right? We just need coffee and Jesus and, and every stupid thing that we put on Christian signs, right? Uh, you know, let's talk about Jesus, stick with Jesus, pick Jesus. Uh, musicians are the worst at these. They come up with awful God puns. Um, but along the way, we have this like Christian club thing and we refuse to say, uh, oh yeah, he's a great king. He's righteous. And he has called us not so that we can have fun and get away with whatever we want and still claim grace. He's called us so that we can be holy. So we cannot go around pardoning sin and saying it's no big deal. No, it's a big deal. The grace of God covers it. Absolutely. But it's a big deal. Sin's a big deal in the eyes of God. And we are uh, tainting the image of God if we try and cover that up. So he's giving all these rebukes. And then chapter 3, he says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And he's going to clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like refiner's fire. God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Because you guys are failing to keep my law, I'm going to send a messenger. He's going to prepare the way. And then I'm going to send the Lord. And he's going to come into the temple and purify it. The Lord says, all right, here's what's going to happen. You guys aren't doing a good job keeping the law. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fulfill the law. We're getting into it next week in Matthew. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. And in the end of Matthew, he says, a new commandment I give you. Basically, he completed the law and said, okay, here's where we go from here. Right? So he said, I'm going to fulfill. I'm going to send my messenger. Chapter 4 is only five verses, so we're going we're to read it. Uh, he says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither roots nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen a cow get loose? That means something to you. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And there ends the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way for God himself to come to you. Now, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we're told that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was the messenger from God to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. But in a very real sense, I believe there's, there's going to be two witnesses who come during the time of the Great Tribulation, and I sincerely believe one of them is Elijah. <laughs> for a couple reasons, but 
I believe that Elijah's going to come and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Because, and again, so much of prophecy is like that, where there's a short-term and long-term fulfillment. But especially if we bear it in mind, as we're wrapping up the Old Testament, it helps us to sort of see what's the final exhortation from the Lord in the Old Testament. The final exhortation is, God is coming. The messenger is coming, so be ready for it, right? Well, what's the final testimony of the New Testament? Revelation 22:20 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. So what's the final message of the Old Testament? Jesus is coming. Get ready for him. What's the final message of the New Testament? Jesus is coming. Get ready for him. Right? How do you get ready for him? You get made righteous by his righteousness. You get filled with his spirit. You watch for his coming. And you remember that he is a great king. Right? There is incredible, remember that, he is a great king. And we are now in the family of the great king. We have all the prestige, all the perks, all the royalty, all the wealth, all the blessings that come from being heirs to everything that the king has. We also have a responsibility to take that seriously, right? So what do we do? How do we apply it? Keep our eyes open. We're watching for the coming of our great king. So Lord, help us to, to be watchful. Help us to be ready for what you want to do, to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would live with eyes open, that we would be uh, excited for your return. God, like John said in the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, our world is, is just, it's sinking in wickedness and we are looking for the return of our king. So please come quickly, God. Send your Holy Spirit down upon us. Prepare us for your return. Help us to live with expectation, to live with urgency, to live in obedience and surrender, and to live in all the joy that comes from knowing that we are children of the King. So have your way with us. Go before us. Use us uh, out in the world and be glorified in our lives. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.